0: Uh, Aside from welcoming you, I just want to draw your attention to a few announcements. They are in your bulletin. Uh, The first being that we will continue midweek. On Wednesday night, we'll have dinner followed by Bible study beginning at 545. If you haven't been, this would be a great week to make your first visit. Um, Also, the following Wednesday, on the 25th, uh, we will have our fall festival. That will be lots of fun for the whole family. So we'd love for you to come out to that as well. We also have lots of activities going on within the life of the church, youth, ladies, and others. Uh, also, I've mentioned this before, but we've got, we're have got we in the process of trying to get our YouTube page up to date and running and working. So if you'd visit our YouTube page and, and subscribe, we'd appreciate that as well as we're going to be trying to make some progress in the technological areas in the coming months. That's all I have by way of announcements. Again, welcome. We're glad that you're with us. Let's take a few moments now to prepare our hearts to worship the living and true God.
1: Please stand for the call to worship from Psalm 145. Hear God's call to you this morning. The Lord is righteous in all his ways and kind in all his works. The Lord is near to all who call on him, to all who call on him in truth. He fulfills the desire of those who fear him. He also hears their cry and saves them. The Lord preserves all who love him, but all the wicked he will destroy. My mouth will speak the praise of the Lord, and let all flesh bless his holy name forever and ever. Let's speak praise to the Lord, and uh, before we sing, would you please join me in prayer? God, we are here to speak your praise, so would you give us your Holy Spirit this morning to do that? Would you empower us? Would you so fill our hearts that we are overflowing in praise to you this morning? God, would you lead us in this time of worship? Would you open our hearts to your word as we hear it preached? And would you show us again what you would have us do for your glory and for our good? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's worship together with hymn 172, which is, Let us love and sing and wonder. Hymn 172. Would remain standing. This hymn leads us wonderfully into our confession of faith, which we take this morning from the Apostles' Creed. So I'll ask you, believer, what is it that you believe? I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. You may be seated. Last week I led us in a prayer of lament uh, for the things in which we are suffering through, through through the suffering we see in the world. Um, This week I thought we would pray using a psalm that many call an, an imprecatory psalm, the psalms of judgment. They're psalms that when we read we have a tough time really applying them ourselves to our life because we're meant to see God bring them about, bring his judgment in Time. So when we see injustice, we pray for justice, and this is one of those psalms. So I'll lead us in a prayer based on this psalm as we continue through our worship service. So would you please pray with me? Dear God, it's good this morning to recall and to remember that you are infinite, that you are eternal and unchangeable, that you are glorious in your holiness That you're full of love and compassion, and that you're abundant in grace and truth. And your glory is revealed to us in Jesus Christ, your Son. God, we are finite. We are temporary, changeable. Sometimes we're full of love and compassion, and sometimes not. Sometimes we're capable of grace and embracing truth, and oftentimes we're not. So we thank you, God, for our life, for a life we don't deserve, for your Son, Jesus, and the activity of the Holy Spirit in our hearts. We praise you this morning, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, one God who is blessed forever. Lord Jesus, it's impossible to avoid all of the news in this day and age, especially when there's conflict and terrorism, especially when children and families are brought into the line of violence and injustice as we watch in Israel and Gaza, Ukraine, and elsewhere. So, God, we pray that you would let the evil of the wicked come to an end. We pray that you would establish the righteous. God, you tell us in your word that you're a righteous judge and a God who feels indignation every day. And this is a great comfort to us, your people, for vengeance is yours alone and not ours. God, we burn with rage when we see injustice, and we know you burn more. Your word says, If a man does not repent, God will wet his sword. He has bent and readied his bow. He has prepared for him his deadly weapons making his arrows fiery shafts. Behold, the wicked man conceives evil and is pregnant with mischief and gives birth to lies. He makes a pit, digging it out, and falls into the hole that he has made. His mischief returns upon his own head, and on his own skull his violence descends. I will give to the Lord the thanks due to his righteousness, and I will sing praise to the name of the Lord the Most High. And so, God, we hear this, and we pray, bring justice across the world. Help us to entrust our anger and our rage to you, that you would make us people of compassion and grace and even forgiveness for our enemies. Lord, we thank you for the many blessings that you have given us for this beautiful weekend, for the weather, for the joyous event at the airport that many enjoyed, for your protection of the Winston Academy football player who suffered a severe concussion this weekend. God, we thank you for your protection of joy. God, we thank you for the small things um, like apple pie uh, or sticky toffee pudding, which I love. Lord, you are A good God, you bless us with food that makes us joyful, and we thank you for that. God, would you bless us here this morning? Would you fill us with your spirit? Would you fill our cups to overflowing? Would you make this time of worship something extraordinary that would be different from the rest of this week, and that would fill us for the week to come? Change our hearts, we pray. And would you lead us in the prayer that Jesus taught his disciples how to pray? Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, and thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we forgive our debtors. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever. Amen. Please pray with me. God, whether we give uh, once a month, uh, once a week, however we give, Lord, it's not about how often we give, but it's about our hearts. And you have come to change our hearts, to give us a new heart, a heart that sings your praises, a heart that responds to your grace and forgiveness. So, Lord, as we hear the gospel again from your word, as we grow in your word every day, would you make us uh, into joyful givers, who have received so much from you, an abundance from you, uh, that we are uh, eager to give for your church. So use these tithes and offerings uh, for great things for your name. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. If you would remain standing, we'll continue worshiping with hymn 672, 672, which is Trust and Obey.
0: I would invite you to turn with me now to the 12th chapter of the book of Genesis. We're going to read together verses 10 through 20 of the chapter, but before we read it, let me pray for us. Let us pray. Father, this is your word that we are gathered before now, and we pray that you would fan it to flame in our hearts, make it alive to us, um, illumine our minds to understand, and give us wills that desire to obey you. For we ask it all in Christ's name. Amen. Genesis 12, uh, beginning in verse 10. Hear God's word. Now there was a famine in the land, so Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there. For the famine was severe in the land. When he was about to enter Egypt, he said to Sarai, his wife, I know that you are a woman, beautiful in appearance. And when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. Then they will kill me. But they will let you live. Say you are my sister, that it may go well with me because of you, and that my life may be spared for your sake. When Abram entered Egypt, the Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful. And when the princes of Pharaoh saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh, and the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. And for her sake, he dealt well with Abram. And he had sheep, oxen, male donkeys, male servants, female servants, female donkeys, and camels. But the Lord afflicted Pharaoh And his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. So Pharaoh called Abram and said, What is this that you have done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister so that I took her for my wife? Now then, here is your wife. Take her and go. And Pharaoh gave men orders concerning him. And they sent him away with his wife and all that he had. And this ends the reading of God's Word. This is a difficult passage. As recently as yesterday, I was saying I wish that we didn't do the bulletins earlier in the week because I was still tempted to skip this one. But it's too late now. You know, a lot of time lapses between Genesis 1 through 9 and Genesis 10 through 20. Abram has made his pilgrimage possibly all the way to Judah, and as soon as he arrives there, you know, years later, thousands of miles later of traveling, the first thing he meets is, is a famine. You know, it's not all rainbows and lollipops, and uh, what was the pudding that was mentioned? Figgy toffee pudding. It's... It's not all that for Abram on this journey. Uh, It's a difficult one. Uh, He's not going to live in Egypt permanently. The text specifically says he went there to sojourn. He never had intention of staying there. But you have to ask, why on earth would Abram say that Sarai was his sister? Well, we'll find out later in Genesis. She is his half-sister, which makes this kind of half-truth. But then why does God plague Pharaoh's house I mean, who's the good guy in this story at the end of the day? It's a complicated question, and we need to look at the context to figure it out. They say context is king. Uh, I heard Gordon Hugenberger, who's a preacher that I like to listen to, say that if you hear someone say that they went to the ballpark and somebody stole third and ran home, you might be left saying, well, he must have done something really bad if he ran home after he stole third. This guy obviously needs to go to jail. Like, if you don't understand baseball, if you don't understand the context, it completely changes the meaning. But if you understand the context of a baseball game, you understand what happened. And what we need to establish in this early part of Genesis for context is that God seems to be telling the same stories. Different characters, different little turns here and there, but the same stories over and over again. And knowing the basic stories of the Bible will not only help you understand the Bible, but they'll help you understand the world and, and really help you to understand yourself and your own lives. So I want us to look at the basic elements of this story to kind of get the context of it. And we're going to do so under three points. One, I want you to see that it's a basic plot two, that there's opposition in this plot, and three, that this little mini-plot points us to the great plot of the Bible. So number one, this story is a basic plot. So basically, every story starts with every good story. starts with a character who has a wish, and that wish comes true, but then it comes with a catch. If you get that... You will never watch movies the same again because you'll always be looking for, okay, the main character. What's he or she want? And when they get it, what's the catch that comes with it? Well, with Abram, he has several wishes. One is to have a child. I mean, the catch to have a son. And the catch that's going to come for that later on, there's several catches. One is he's going to have to wait 20 more years. Another is that God's going to ask him to do something with that son on an altar that Abram doesn't want to do. But we're not there yet. Right now, Abram has a wish to get to the promised land. And he's going to get there, but it's going to come with a catch that there's going to be a severe famine in the land. It mentions famine twice to point out that it was very severe. So the famine is the inciting incident of the second part of chapter 12 that leads us to a whole new story that that Abram now has to go searching for food so he doesn't starve to death. And that search leads him south from Judah down into Egypt. Now this sets up a couple of plots that God is going to tell over and over again in the Bible. And one is God's people having to leave the land to find food. That's Abram's story. That's the story in the book of Ruth. That's the story later on in the book of Genesis. As we get into the story of Joseph in the house of Pharaoh. His great job in Egypt is to store food so that they can... Feed peoples who come flocking into Egypt uh, because of severe famine surrounding all of Egypt. You know, Egypt was blessed to have the Nile River, which kept the land fertile. And really, you know, as you think about that at the end of Genesis, how that famine in the land and Egypt's store of food that leads to peoples from all over the known world at the time, coming there for food and becoming subservient to Pharaoh, ultimately leading to the enslavement of the Israelites and therefore into the book of Exodus. If you look at this story with Abram, the, the similarities of the plot to the Exodus story itself are really striking, and I had never seen this before this past week studying the passage. So let's notice a couple of things. Aside from the famine that leads Abram into Egypt, we learn what type of place Egypt is. So in our passage in verse 12, Abram says, when the Egyptians see you, he says this to his wife, They will say, This is his wife. Then they will kill me, but they will let you live. This is telling us Egypt is a place where men are killed. It's not a good place. When we flip over to the book of Exodus in chapter 1, verse 22, early in that narrative, it says, Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, Every son that is born to the Hebrews you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. See the parallel. The young men, the boys, they're going to die. The women are going to live. So Egypt is a place where men die. It's also a place where people are enslaved. In verse 15 of our passage, it says, When the princes of Pharaoh saw Sarai, they praised her to Pharaoh, and the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. The word there is a very violent word. It's literally seized. It wasn't like... Uh, Pharaoh came and dropped some pickup line on Sarai, and she just willfully followed, uh, followed him to, her, to the house. He sent soldiers there to seize her. And, you know, it's, it's an interesting story. I wasn't planning on saying this, but it's kind of an elephant in the room. Sarai, at this point, is 60 years old. And Abram is worried she's so attractive that the Pharaoh is going to want to come and steal her and kill Abram if that's what it takes to get her. So you've got to ask what are Sarai's beauty secrets. And I have no idea, but I'm going to give you a free pickup line for your spouse only or potential spouse. And that is, honey, you're so beautiful. If we went into Egypt, I know Pharaoh would kill me.
2: <laughs>
0: but Sarai is seized, and there's a clear message This is our introduction to Egypt in the Bible. Remember with Babylon, we were introduced that they were a confused people not to be trusted. This is our introduction to Egypt. Pharaoh kills men. He takes lives. He seizes people. He enslaves people. Don't trust Pharaoh. He's a thief. He's a murderer. And now the the final parallel here that's, that's so clear in the story is, God brings plagues on Pharaoh's house, and Pharaoh sends Abram out with great possessions. Exact same thing that's going to happen in the Exodus. Verse 17, the Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. And if you, ever, if you want to get nerdy and have some fun with commentaries, boy, the old Jewish commentators had a lot of theories on exactly what these plagues were. And I'm not even going to go there today, but I'll just share that with you. And then Pharaoh says in verse 19 to Abram, Why did you say she is my sister, so that I took her for my wife? Now then, here is your wife, take her and go. It's really stark in the Hebrew. It's literally, take her and get out. I don't ever want to see your face again. Get out of my land. It's the exodus in miniature. It's following the same basic plot. That leads to number two. So we've got this plot that's going to be repeated through the Old Testament, what does God want us to know? Well, one thing he wants us to know is that in the stories that God tells, in his basic plots, there's always opposition. I mean, not only in the story of Abram does he have to face famine. I mean, you know, there are Christians who literally, people who are adults who become Christians who think their life is going to get easier now. That's never God's story. Life almost always becomes harder after you become a believer. But There's always opposition. And see, we can't know all of history. There's just too much to know. That's an old joke for ministers who are going through ordination exams. You could flunk everybody on the history exam because it's just not possible to know thousands and thousands of years of history. But if we know the basic plots of history, the basic stories that God tells over and over again, it can help us understand life, and it can help us not to make the same mistakes over and over again. This is one of the reasons I enjoy storytelling in general, why I enjoy novels and movies. They generally follow the same basic few plots because humans all experience the same experience at the end of the day. One author, a secular author that I read, said, our flood of books and movies, of plots and story arcs, they might be mankind's way to be aware of all our history, our options. If we're too lazy to learn history, Maybe we can learn plots. That's part of what God's doing by telling the same stories over and over again. It's like if you get these plots down, you can understand what's going on around you. I mean, I've made the joke in, in the past many times. It's like, go back and watch The Matrix if you want to understand what's going on in our world today. It's, it's such a basic archetypal plot. That's why it's stuck around for as long as it has. But getting back to our story in Genesis 12, one of the basic plots here is that there's always opposition. God's people always face opposition. You will always face trials that tempt you to get off the path. The opposition here particularly is a dictator. And we learn a very basic thing about dictators that it would be helpful to know. And that's that dictators dictate. Tyrants tyrannize. Tyrants are not to be trusted They control people through food. They enslave people. They kill. But in the end, God sends plagues upon them, and they lose. But in the midst of tyranny, it's hard to believe this, because we don't see the plagues yet. All Abram knew is that this man, Pharaoh, is so vicious and tyrannical that he would kill him in order to steal his wife. And the commentators have a field day on this. I read some commentators who I really tore into Abram for this. How dare this man, who's supposed to be the hero of our faith, put his wife and ultimately his future family at risk. What a terrible husband, if not a terrible human being. I read other commentators who just tried to defend Abram. And you you can actually make a pretty good defense that he was acting rationally, if nothing else here. But this story is just showing us a basic truth to the human story in general. And that is that when we are faced with tyranny, the first temptation will be to give up the truth. There are times when we will need to distort the truth when we face tyranny. You'll see that in Exodus. Remember the Hebrew midwives who were lifted up as heroes. What did they do? They fudged the truth. They said, "Oh, these Hebrew women... They're so virile, they just, they just give birth before we can even get in the room. The truth was, you know, they're trying to hide these babies. Moses is a benefactor himself of being hidden. And you see this with Abram. He's trying to protect himself from being killed. He's trying to protect the, the messianic family from going out of existence. Now, the problem is, when lying becomes ingrained, And see, the entire kingdom of Egypt, one of the things that God wants us to see about Egypt leading into Exodus, the entire kingdom is built on lies. Lies of false gods. Read Exodus carefully, you'll see when God sends the, the ten plagues on Egypt, he says he's declaring war on Egypt's false gods. It's a war of truth versus lies, of true religion versus false religion, of the seed of the woman versus the seed of the serpent. And God is showing us in the plagues that God is in control of everything from flies to famines to Pharaoh's firstborn. But he's showing us on the basis of this little lie that Abram tells that one of the things we have to be very careful about is letting lying become ingrained in our lives. And you know, Of all the temptations we face now in modern America, believing and propagating lies is right up there at the top of the list because we have this little thing called the internet and it's hard to know who to believe anymore about anything and so i've gone back in these recent years since you know all the chaos from 2016 on 2020 on and uh, you know I've, people always told me you need to read the russians well i don't enjoy reading the russians because they're not easy to read, especially in translation. But you know, because Rod Dreher wrote a book on it recently, it's come out uh, more popularly, that one of the Russians who was in the fight of truth versus lies in the Soviet Union during the Cold War, uh, particularly in the 1970s, was Alexander Solzhenitsyn. Say that name three times fast. In 1974, he was being arrested by the Soviet Union because he was standing up against the Communist Party. And he released an essay on the day he was arrested called Live Not By Lies. That's where I got the basis for our title today, Live Not By Half Truths. But this is a few things that Solzhenitsyn said, and they're so applicable today. Our way must be never knowingly support lies. And thus overcoming our temerity, let each man choose. Will he remain a witting servant of the lies? Needless to say, not due to natural predisposition, but in order to provide a living for the family, to rear children in the spirit of lies. He was saying the temptation Russians were facing was, i got to have food, and therefore i got to support the lie. Or as the time come? For men to stand straight as honest men, worthy of the respect of his children and contemporaries, and from that day onward to vow, this is strong stuff, that he will not write, sign, or publish in any way a single lie distorting the truth so far as he can see. Will he not utter a lie in private or in public conversation, nor read it from a crib sheet, nor speak it in the role of educator, canvasser, teacher, or even actor? Will he not, in painting, scripture, photography, technology, or music, depict, support, or broadcast a single false thought, a single distortion of the truth, as he discerns it? Will he not cite in writing or in speech a single guiding quote for gratification, insurance, or his success at work, unless he fully shares the cited thought and believes that it fits the context precisely? Will he not be forced to demonstration or a rally if it runs counter to his desire and his will? Will he not take up and raise a banner or slogan in which he does not fully believe? Will he not be impelled to take a meeting where a forced and distorted discussion is expected to take place? Will he not subscribe to nor buy in retail a newspaper or journal that distorts or hides the underlying facts. He said, live not by lies. We need that voice. God put it in his top ten. You shall not bear false witness. We need that voice in the church. Another Russian from previous century, Dostoevsky, said the man who lies to himself and listens to his own lie comes to a point that he cannot distinguish the truth within him or around him and so loses all respect for himself and for others. And having no respect for himself, he ceases to love. See, the greatest lie that we face now in our culture is either that there is no God or that if there is a God or gods, that those gods must not be the God Of the Bible. And this isn't a new problem. If you look at Romans chapter 1, a very famous passage, starting in verse 21, Paul diagnoses the most basic lie of humanity when he says, Although they, this humanity, knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. See, this half-truth, we're still worshiping God. When the alleged God or gods that they're worshiping is nowhere close to the God of the Bible, and you say, yeah, preacher, that's the world. You just nailed them. Not so fast, my friend, as Lee Corso would say. Because when Paul is talking about them exchanging the glory of God for these images resembling an ox, a bird, a human... He's actually alluding to Psalm 106, particularly verses 20 and 21, which says, They exchanged the glory of God for the image of an ox that eats grass. They, who are that they? They forgot God their Savior who had done great things in Egypt. Originally, that passage was talking about Israel. It was the temptation for Israel to become so ingrained in lies that they gave up the truth and worshiped false gods. This isn't a problem for the world. It's a problem for us in this room. It's a problem for the church. John Owen, Puritan writer, said, as long as we believe that we are sinners, we have to believe that our best works are like little white lies. We're never perfectly consistent. We're all a bag of mixed motivations. And so we're always tempted to live by half truths, which is why I want to ask you today, why are you here? Are you here for the truth? Do you want to look at yourself in the mirror and admit who you really are before God? Do you want him to search you and expose your sins so that he can change you? Or are you worshiping a God you've made up with your own imagination, living your little half truth? hoping that he can prop you up and give you a happy and prosperous life as long as you just kind of halfway go along with what he says. That leads to the last point. I want to remind you today, in the midst of a world full of lies, churches full of lies, there's only one thing that can keep us on the right track. And that's the ultimate plot that this story of Abram points toward. And I want you to see this. In verse 19 of our passage, Pharaoh says, why did you say she is my sister? So that I took her for my wife. Now then, here is your wife. Take her and go. Get out. It's the message God gave to Abram when he sent him to Canaan. Get out. Go to a place that I'm going to show you. Now, Abram's saying, get out of my land. The New Testament starts with a story of somebody else getting out of Israel into Egypt and then leaving Egypt again and coming back to Judah. Matthew 2.13 says, When they had departed, that's Joseph and Mary, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother, and flee to Egypt, and remain there until I tell you. But Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. All the echoes of Genesis and Exodus in the birth narrative, the early narrative of Jesus. Another one of God's servants in danger, needing to flee. Then God calls him out. You know, there's an interesting verse. I can still remember in seminary uh, hearing a professor talk about this for the first time and it absolutely blowing my mind. Because we, we were learning all these rules about what they call hermeneutics, proper Bible interpretation. Um, and then you read Hosea 11.1, 1, which says, When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. And so God calls... Israel, his child. He beckons his child out of Egypt in the Exodus. But that passage is quoted in the infancy narrative of Jesus in Matthew 2.15, right after the passage we read. It says that Mary, Jesus, Joseph remained there in Egypt until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, Out of Egypt I called my son. That's quite an interpretation. He's telling us that the entire exodus happened to set up the story of Jesus going to Egypt and then God calling him out to accomplish God's redemptive purposes in the world. The plot of Israel resolves in Jesus. He's the true Israel, the true son of God who God calls out of Egypt. He's the true firstborn who's going to experience the plagues of God on the cross so that he can set us free. He's going to go through his own famine for 40 days in the wilderness, being tested and tempted by the devil. And remember in the Exodus story, what's the first miracle of the Exodus? What's the first plague? God attacks the principal God of Egypt that allow, allowed them to survive plagues. He turns the Nile into blood, he turns water into blood. What's the first miracle? of Jesus. He turns water into wine. The same story. It's being told over and over again. And after the water is turned into blood, turned into wine, what do we know instinctually? If we know the plot, what do we know has to happen, ultimately? The firstborn has to die. Only this time Jesus is going to be the firstborn. God tells the same stories over and over. Because when Jesus shows up, he wants there to be no mistake. He wants us to know exactly who he is. He wants us to know that all these stories are ultimately about him. C.S. Lewis called Jesus' story the human situation writ large. All the stories of humanity resolve in him. Cast away from the Father. He experiences alienation. He's betrayed by His closest friends. He's betrayed by family members. He's betrayed by his entire nation. He's betrayed by a tyrannical government. And at the end of the day, his final words are, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He experienced all of our darkness. So that at the end of it, it, he could give us all of his light. He took the consequences of our lies and half-truths upon himself so that he could say to us, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. I want to end with one of my favorite quotes. And I, I clipped it down. It's long uh, in its original version. But John Calvin, in the 1500s, the New Testament was translated into French for the first time. And Calvin wrote a preface to the French translation, oh, actually of the Bible, not just the New Testament, to the king. He dedicated it to the king and said, here, king, when you read this in your own language... This is what you're going to find. This is part of what he said. He says, Jesus Christ is Isaac, the beloved son of the Father, who was offered as a sacrifice, but nevertheless did not succumb to the power of death. Jesus Christ is Jacob, the watchful shepherd, who has such great care for the sheep which he guards. Jesus is the good and compassionate brother Joseph, who in his glory was not ashamed to acknowledge his brothers, however lowly and abject their condition. He is the great sacrificer and bishop Melchizedek who has offered an eternal sacrifice once for all. That's just in the book of Genesis. Calvin says it follows that every good thing we could think or desire is to be found in this same Jesus Christ alone. For he was sold to buy us back, taken captive to deliver us, condemned to absolve us. He was made a curse For our blessing, he was made a sin offering for our righteousness. This is what we, in short, should seek in the whole scripture. Truly to know Jesus Christ and the infinite riches that are comprised in him and are offered to us by him from God the Father. If one were to sift thoroughly the law and the prophets, he would not find a single word which would not draw us and bring us to Jesus. Therefore rightly does St. Paul say in another passage that he would know nothing except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And for a fact, since all the treasures of wisdom and understanding are hidden in Christ, there is not the least question of having or turning toward another goal. Not unless we would deliberately turn aside from the light of truth to lose ourselves in the darkness of lies. Gordon Ramsey, that theologian, he likes to say when chefs mess up, he says, you've lost the plot. You know how we lose the plot? It's when we get away from Christ. Spurgeon called the Apostle Paul the man with one message. He knew nothing except Christ and him crucified. If you wanted to talk about politics, he had one message. Jesus is Lord. If you wanted to talk about family, he had one message. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Wives, submit to your husbands as to Christ. Children, obey your parents in the Lord. The plot always, always, always resolves in Jesus. When you get off the path, when you find yourself tempted to buy the lies, not only of the world around you, but even that are being propagated within the church, say to yourself, I've lost the plot. And if you want to understand your life and get back on the right path, return to that same old plot, which terminates in a very simple message. It's Jesus saying, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. Let us pray. Father, we are, we live in a world that is rapidly changing at a rate that we don't even understand. We're going through a digital revolution that in the midst of it, we don't even realize it's a revolution, and it scares some of us, concerns some of us. The younger ones among us are so engrossed in it that it's hard for them to pull away objectively and see what's happening but regardless in the years to come as we face tyranny we're gonna be tempted to lie and there are times when we we will need to be silent just out of wisdom there are times when we're gonna have to be very shrewd but may it never be that your church would capitulate to living constantly in lies As Soltanitsyn said, live not by lies. Help us to live not even by half-truths. Not in our workplaces, not in our households, certainly not civically. And Lord, bring us back to this plot over and over again that will help us to stay faithful to your truth. And that is that Jesus is the truth. And if we do not stray from him, we'll never stray far from ultimately your truth. So help us to be faithful in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation in lifting up the blessed name of our Savior, for we ask it in his name. Amen. Let's stand together and sing our closing hymn, which is number 181. We come, O Christ, to you. Now the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all as we continue this, our short earthly pilgrimage. Amen.